The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective, Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, legendary designer Johnny Ive is leaving Apple, and we'll talk about what that means both for Apple and for the products that they make and we buy. Later on, I'll chat with Andrew Blum, the author of a book called The Weather Machine, all about the incredible amount of technology that goes into understanding and predicting the weather. I promise you will never look at a forecast the same way again. But first... According to AAA, more than 49 million people are planning to travel over the coming July 4th weekend. So let's talk about how to travel a little bit better. Joining me as always, Joanna Stern, because Christopher Mims is somehow on vacation again. Hi, Joanna. Thank you for not being on vacation, always. I'm never on vacation. I never take a break. I feel like that's what happens when you have, when you have kids, is suddenly it's so much work to go anywhere that you just kind of give up and go to work. That's true, actually. I was thinking until they turn like ten, and then you can do things. Yeah, you know, it's it's what holiday weeks are for: is going to work when you don't have to. It's a beautiful thing. Um, So here's how I want to do this segment. So you and I each picked a gadget, an app, and a life hack we think are essential for travel. But we weren't allowed to pick anything obvious, like bring noise canceling headphones or get to the airport early. So let's try to find things that are sort of out of the ordinary. Uh, Joanna, let's start with you and start with gadgets. So what's your number one go-to travel gadget? Okay, I'm, I'm kind of breaking the rules here. It's not a single gadget, but it is a okay. bag of gadgets. It's a bag of dongles. And I have this okay. bag that I always have packed because you never know when you're going to need to leave emergen- an emergency trip and bring a dongle. And so I have this blue bag and I can just, I'm going to list off some of the dongles that I bring. And for... Yeah. Do I need to explain what dongles are? It connects a thing that doesn't connect to another thing. Yeah. Good Simple definition enough, right? of dongles. Okay. We should save that for Thank later. You. We should, well, we can use that. <laughs> so Good. the main one that I always bring on any airplane trip is the headphone to lightning adapter. And this is because if I'm listening to music on my phone, then I what if I decide on the airplane, oh, I really want to listen to that great movie that they're showing on this airplane today. And I need to plug in my headphones to the seat pocket in front of me or the seat armrest to the right of me or left of me. That's really smart. I have other dongles in the bag. Like I have a, I have a, yeah. I have a USB-C dongle, kind of a, an extension port thing. I don't have the actual name of it right now. Do you, I mean, do you, does anyone know the name of the dongles? extension port thing. Yeah. No. It's just, it's a USB-C in and, a, and a, I have this little port thing also has an SD card reader on it. It has a regular USB size, USB port. I mean, I have other things That's it? in that bag. So I also have No, what else? I, I want the whole list, Joanna. Well, you, Every single dongle. Pour it out toes. on the table for me right now. One of them's, no, one of them's not a specific going. dongle. It's a, it's a, a battery charger. I don't want to spoil yours. No, it's okay. We both have battery chargers. Mine mine will come in a minute. I also have Mine's an, cooler than yours, so it'll come. It's I have okay. an anchor wall socket that has three USB uh, USB ports in that you can oh, put into it. One. I have a number of other cords, lightning cords, USB-C cords, mini USB cords, micro USB cords. Uh, you never know. Yeah, I, I carry a lot of this stuff too, and I realized I was in... Uh, I think LA on my way to Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago and we were going through security and something was wrong. I discovered recently you have to take a Nintendo Switch out and put it in the, the separate bin like you do with a laptop. But so they're taking this out and he's like, I need you to take all the cables out of your bag. 
And I was like, I looked at him, I was like, this is going to take me a minute. And I realized I have like 40 loose cables just all over my backpack. So I think a, a, bag, a bag full of cables is a thing that I need. Um, okay, so mine, as you mentioned, is a battery pack, but I have a specific one. And it's the Mophie Charge Stream Power Station Wireless, which is like four brand names in a row and is sort of ridiculous. But it it's a wireless charger and also a charging brick. So you can plug it into the wall. And I, I use it as like a wireless charging pad when I'm in a hotel or whatever. I just put the brick next to my bed and put my phone on top of it and it works like a wireless charger. But you can also unplug it from the wall and it has, I forget what it is, but it's like two or three charges for a phone in it. So you can take it with you and you can either plug it in or just sit it on top and it'll charge that way. And it winds up being basically the only charger I bring with me because I can use it plugged in or I can use it on the go. And it's this very handy, simple thing. Anywhere I have like a table, I can just plop my phone on top and charge it for a while. Uh, it's super, super, super useful. I also it's have really one expensive of those. And that's in my, for a battery break. How much it's is it? It's a really it? good one. I think it's like a hundred bucks, which is a lot because you can get one on Amazon. There's a, there's like Anchor makes good ones. I had one from a company called Jackery that was like 21,000 milliamp hours, which is like seven phone charges. And it was much cheaper than that. But the, the Mophie one is really good and really reliable. And the wireless charging thing is, is genuinely handy enough that I kind of think it's worth it. And I'm just looking to see. I, I really can't find the name of this USB-C port that I have or this USB-C dongle for those that want to buy it. But I searched an Amazon USB-C dongle and a lot of ones that look exactly like it come up. So you'll be fine with one of those. Um, yeah. Okay. So moving on, what what's your go-to travel app? So mine's really lame, but I live in New Jersey and I fly out of Newark a lot, which means I fly United a lot. And so I have the United app. And the reason that now I, I like really use it. I used to never use the like airline apps. I just like, just didn't really like, I would email the boarding pass to myself. I would have everything on my phone. But the reason I use this app now is that United is really moving away from having screens on their, um, on their back seats. And so oh, yeah. if you want to watch a movie or you want to watch a TV show, or even if you just want to like get what, what the remaining flight time is, you have to go into the app. Um, you don't even get the so maps. Crazy. Like I, I love the maps. I could maps. watch flight maps all like for my six hour flights. I watch flight maps. Yeah. And so a lot of United flights don't have this. A lot of the planes don't have it anymore. So I have to have the United app on my phone. And most of the time I'm actually not using it in the airport. I'm using it on the plane. That's really smart. Yeah. I had on, on the same flight to Hong Kong, we got on the plane. Uh, and this was, I guess this is a shorter flight, but they were like, yeah, uh, we don't have screens on this flight. Uh, we're already in the air. Hope you downloaded the GoGo Entertainment app totally. so you can watch the movies. And I'm like, why would I have downloaded the GoGo Wait, Entertainment app? Your long app? flight to Hong Kong didn't have screens. No, that one that one had screens, but the, oh. the flight I think it was from from our our layover flight in America uh, didn't have screens. And oh. it's like now I have that app on every single device that I own just in case. So it's it's smart that United would actually put it in their app. That's a good one. Right, but that, uh, that's exactly what I found myself in that situation. Like they were like, if you want to watch something, you download the United app and you're up in the air and you're like, so I need to now pay for Wi-Fi to get right, your app. Thanks for telling me this Thank before you. we took off. Yeah, great. I mean, to be Amount fair, they, $25. Probably, they did tell us and we just didn't pay attention to the I don't know. I never pay attention to those. That one's that one's probably on me. That's a fair point. But they should there should be signs. There, there should, should be, be, or it should be there, in there the screen space on the yeah, on exactly. the back of the seat. They should print cards that say, "There used to be a screen here. Now you need to download it on your phone." <laughs> because we hate you. Yeah. Enjoy your flight. And this seat uh, is so okay. dirty. Don't even touch it. <laughs> Just sit here and hold your phone. Everything even looking will be fine. at it probably gave you a disease. <laughs> 
and be wary because somebody is going to recline it into your face in 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, so my my app is uh, it's called App in the Air, and it's one of those like uh, sort of overall itinerary apps. You can actually have it plug into your email, and it'll automatically find all your boarding passes and stuff. I feel weird about that. I don't like giving apps access to my email, but you can also do it manually. So you can you can send them emails and and uh, have them basically go through things and figure out when your flight leaves and all your confirmation numbers and stuff like that. So it's a really handy thing as you're moving around. But it also has uh, really, really good airport maps, which is strangely useful for things like knowing where good food is in an airport or how to get to your gate or whatever else you need to do in the airport, get to baggage claim and stuff like that. Um, and it has this section where uh, basically app in the air is used by people who like really, really, really travel hard. It's geared towards people who do this for a living. It's like the, I think they said the app was actually inspired by the movie up in the air where George Clooney is like the guy who lives in airports basically. Uh, and so those people leave these sort of ways style pro tips for where to go in an airport where it's like, Oh, here is a secret place where you can charge your phone that nobody knows about, or go to this place. The food is really good. Or, you know, this is the clean bathroom. So things like that. And it becomes this That's super useful no clean bathroom. See, you would know if you traveled like these fancy people, uh, and they'll, they'll, they have pro tips to be fair. I've never <laughs> seen one about a bathroom, but I'm sure there is a clean bathroom somewhere. Uh, it's one of those things that like being in an airport just sucks, especially if you have a layover longer than like an hour. Uh, and every time I've used App in the Air, it has it has made that small but sort of crucial part of a journey uh, way easier. So I'm I'm a big fan. I'm gonna try that. Um, I'm flying on Thursday, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try it. Okay, so what what's your what's your life hack for travel? Your your like go to pro tip for anyone trying to brave travel this weekend? So I have two. One is bring extra sh- extra socks. Mm. I know this is not a tech tip, but you know what? If you want to buy smart socks, which are a thing, I think you can buy sure. those. But um, it gets cold on airplanes this time of year because they think they're they're overcompensating for the air conditioning and my feet are always freezing. So sometimes I wear two pairs of socks. I like it. I mean, you probably look just, super cool, too, yeah. which works out. Yeah. Do you do you want a tech tip, too, or is that it? Do you Can like I it? Just get well, off? no, I have a lot of questions about your sock strategy now. Oh. Do you Are you the type who, like, takes off your shoes and just chills in your two pairs of socks for the whole flight? Um, yeah, I will if my feet are really cold. Sometimes okay. my feet get cold through the socks in my shoes. That's how cold my – maybe it's just me. Maybe I have a feet cold si- syndrome. Yeah, you have a real circulation problem. Yeah. You should I should just get up, up and more walk. Often I'm, on sure the that's, yeah. I'm sure that's something I should be doing, but I don't do it, <laughs> even though my Apple Watch tells me to get up. Yeah, um, see, you should listen. And sometimes, like, I'll end up wearing – like, I, I, I might not have socks in my shoes and my feet get really cold. Mm. Yeah, that's rough. I, I also am a take off my shoes and just hang out in my socks person, and I occasionally wonder if I'm – you know, some sort of monster. But as long as you're not the person who's like putting your bare feet yeah. up on someone else's seat, I think you're fine. I was just about to say that that's absolutely disgusting. And if you're listening to our podcast and you do that, we're fine with you not listening anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but also please email us so we can gently tell you how insane you are and, and how to be a better person. You really should not be barefoot on an airplane. It just it you shouldn't be. No, there's just no there's just no reason. Just buy slip on shoes yeah. and slip them on. It's fine. Everything will be fine. And wear two pairs of socks. Um, so I'll do, I'll do an extra feet. tech tip here because you, you said this okay. was a good one to talk to, but through it, but I decided I wanted to talk about socks instead. Um, Glad you did. I, unlike you, often use airplane Wi-Fi. I find that Ugh. working in the sky is is just a wonderful thing. It's so freeing to do work when you're up 
up, 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 up in the air. See, I agree with that, except that airplane Wi-Fi is horrendous. And so I spend like $50 and six hours to send three emails because it takes every page 45 minutes to load. And then I just end up like murderously angry by the end of the flight and I've gotten nothing done. I just don't understand it. It really is true. Um, But here are my tips for that. One, I always preload the documents that I need to work on because I work in Google Docs. So I preload those before I take off. So I'll like If I'm working on a column or I want to look at my list of other ideas or I'm editing something, I I load those all up. I also load up my email. Um, Yeah, just don't do anything else. (laughs) Do not (laughs) go on Twitter. Do not go on Facebook. Do not try to watch a video. Those things, I download videos. Sometimes I have to watch videos of whether they're my videos or somebody else on their video teams. I have to watch a cut of it, something up in the air, make notes on it. I download before. So really, because otherwise you're like, hold on, I have to download this for three hours and then watch it. And then it'll take an hour to upload my notes. So I'll get to you right about as I land. Yeah. But I I find like I text up there. I, I message. I can can do light emailing, and I find that that's that's worth it. That's worth the seven hundred dollars for <laughs> two hours. Um, okay, what's okay, yours? So mine is, and I I always thought this was ridiculous because I'd seen it recommended other places, and then I did it, and it's the best. It's to write down a like generic packing list for every trip you take, um, just down to every single small detail, whether it's like from the number of pants you need, which is days divided by two to underwear which is like days plus one and basically have the the sort of basic packing list for everything that you need on every trip just look at it every time you sit down and pack and the the peace of mind that it has brought me that i know i'm not forgetting things because i'm actually checking stuff off as i pack them makes everything wonderful i don't usually forget things when i pack but i'm constantly afraid that i do so i end up overpacking uh and having a list in front of me that's like these are all the things i actually need has been super useful. So that's my recommendation is just make like make the most the list generic in. list. I any app you want. I have mine in in Notion, which is the app I use for like all of my notes and stuff, but anywhere you want it. I've seen a lot of people who do it in Apple Notes and you just like duplicate the list every time you need it. Uh it's really 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 great. I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. And I don't forget things anymore. Uh because I have a list now and I don't have to remember to pack each individual charger every single time because it's right there on my list and soon in my bag. But actually, can Ordinarily, we just say here, we want to hear other people's tips that can email us. Oh, yeah, please do. That's a great idea. If you have good travel tips or gadgets or apps or life hacks, send them to us and, and we'll we'll shout out the best ones uh, yeah. on or next week's Or maybe we can episode. put them in the newsletter. If your tip is to wear three pairs of socks, please let us know. So ordinarily, person gets a new job isn't really a story we would talk about on this show. But when that person is Johnny Ive, the the legendary designer at Apple who's worked on everything from the iMac to the iPhone to the Apple Watch, it it turns out it does make a big difference when he leaves. So Trip Mickle, our Apple reporter, has been reporting on Johnny Ive's departure from Apple since well before it was announced. I think he's been working on this story for over a year. Uh, and what he found actually says a lot about what Apple is now and, and where it's going next. So he's just outside in the newsroom. He actually just poked his head in the door uh, and I think is extremely tired after finishing the story he just published. Trip, you look very tired. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> so, okay, so you've been reporting on this story for like a year. Yeah, a what's year, the, year and change for What's sure. the genesis of this story for you? Uh, I had coffee with someone and they said to me, you should really look into Johnny Ive and the battery and told me no more than that. Hmm. Um, and I just 
started it's gathering cryptic. string. Yeah, it was really really cryptic. And when yeah. you're a reporter, you're like, wait, why Johnny Ive and the battery? You don't know anything about this. And, um, you know, that's what was so gratifying about the reporting process was ultimately the lead anecdote. And the story just illuminated the fact that Johnny Ive was basically working out of the battery. And the battery being not yeah. like a, a battery that charges yeah. things, but a, like a social club in San Francisco. Was, yeah. the a very... source, was the source who told you that more clear that it wasn't an actual battery? <laughs> I, I do believe I was so new to San Francisco at the time that I had to be like, well, what is that? Um, you know, and the, it's this exclusive club that's really high end and it's where most of the Sil Silicon Valley elite go. It's not like the Olympic golf club where old San Francisco goes. This is, right. this is new San Francisco. It's like the, it's like the Soho house in New York, but yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and so Johnny was apparently spending a lot of time there and working from there. Um, but it took a lot of time to really fully appreciate that and get an anecdote that really explained like, wait, why is he working from San Francisco instead of in Cupertino? Mm -hmm. And uh, and in the course of the reporting, we were able to get to the, the lead anecdote, which of course is about not only Johnny working out of uh, the battery, but showing up three hours late to a seminal meeting during the process of the creation of the iPhone X with all these software engineers uh, and software actually designers, human interface designers, who were waiting on him to show him key features and get his approval so they could go ahead with it and meet their deadlines. And he's not there. And the guy I spoke with was just like, you know, we're sitting there thinking, how did it come to this? Right. And this had been something that had been going on for a long time. I mean, Johnny had just withdrawn further and further from the company in the wake of Steve's death as the company became kind of a stranger to himself. In some ways, like, in the reporting process, like, it it felt very much like, um, you know, the David Burns song. You know, this is not my beautiful house, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you know, that just was kind of the way it crystallized in, in conversation with people. Yeah. So, okay, so rewind the timeline a little bit here. So Steve Jobs dies in 2011. Um, and I feel like from kind of that moment on, Johnny Ive was christened as, like, the guy who best embodies Apple. Is that fair? Before Steve Jobs' death, Jobs had told his biographer, Walter Isaacson, that the second most powerful powerful person at Apple, after me, obviously, is Johnny. Right. So, yeah, Johnny, Johnny embodied and was carrying the torch for Steve Jobs after his death. And, and by carrying the torch, I mean kind of he was the de facto and de default uh, product visionary for the company. And and you you saw that, you know, really – come to fruition when he began to champion the watch. I mean, that was really a project he felt passionate about and he really pushed. And uh, and that's why we have the Apple Watch today. Right. Okay. And so he eventually, I'm trying to like remember exactly how the timeline went. So he winds up getting promoted, Johnny, from whatever his job was before to chief design officer, I right? I think it's key to understand that like the relationship with Johnny and Steve worked in part because it was but it was so collaborative. I mean, Steve was was an editor, and so he would stop by the studio almost daily. He would eat with Johnny regularly. And that kind of constant communication and their shared vision for design was what led to some of the great products that we, we saw, the you know, the iPod, iPhone, and iPad. Yeah, I liked you had a line in the story that was something like Steve was the one who had the sort of big, giant vision, and Johnny was the one who knew how to make stuff. Right. Which is like sort of, a, it makes sense. It's sort of a perfect team. Yeah, it, it, it fit together yeah. just like you're talking about. And then when, when Steve dies, Tim Cook, you know, for all intents and purposes and conversation with person after person, 
doesn't show interest in the product development process, doesn't swing by the design studio. So Johnny went from constant attention to no attention, to constant collaboration, to no collaboration. And that was challenging. Um, and the watch, I think, was a challenging development process mm -hmm. in part because of that. And at the end of 2014, they had announced the watch in September of 2014. You know, he told, he told the team that he'd worked on it with, like, look, I'm really tired. And you ask anybody who was senior at Apple at that time, and they'll say, we were all exhausted. We had, we had moved mountains to get this product out. Um, Johnny went to Tim in 2015 and said, look, I need a break. And I think that's like one of the most fascinating things about this story, that it isn't really about Ive. It's a lot more about the culture that's been going on or been sort of breeding in in Apple since Jobs has left. And I think like your kicker, which I think actually we should just read out loud, um, like gives a sense of that that design isn't as core to the operations there. And so can you guys like kind of explain for us like the push and pull or like this tug of war that seems to have come out in your reporting between design and like operations and engineers? My reporting shows that there wasn't a lot of push and pull, that there wasn't a lot of tug, that that the operations team that was kind of on the outside and implementing a lot of the work that was being done by engineering and designing, design actually shifted to the inside of the circle. And so they became they became the tip of the spear. And and that just changed the nature of the company. I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it really does. Well, because for that's... Apple, it had been for decades this like small group of people in this like big open room with blonde wood tables, and they they like it was the group of designers ran everything. Like the they they were the ones who were in charge of what got made, or at least that's how Apple liked to talk about it. And then it seems like over the last few years that just changed. Yeah, I mean, you you, you would talk to hardware engineers and. Um, you know, they had a, a saying when it came to working with the people in the industrial design studio, and it was, you don't disappoint the gods. Mm. I mean, their word was gospel. If they wanted a millimeter off a product, you worked uh, enslaved to try to deliver that. Mm -hmm. Which is not how any other company works, we should say. Like, that's just not really how it works anywhere else except for Apple. And it's like what a lot of people saw as sort of the, the special sauce that Apple was so design-led. So I went through... And I made a list of all of the like genuinely new first-generation products that Apple has launched since Steve Jobs died, uh, just sort of out of curiosity. And I threw a couple of things in there that were existing products, but like new enough that I thought they counted. So I'm, I'm going to read you the list and what's Are striking you counting to me. The pencil? Yes. Okay. Uh, so there's earpods. This is in sort of chronological order, but not quite. Earpods, the headphones that came with the the iPhone, uh, the iPad Pro, the Mac Pro, the trash can. Uh, the 12-inch MacBook, the Apple Watch, the Apple Pencil, the MacBook Pro with Touch Bar, AirPods, the iPhone X, and HomePod. And what's crazy to me about that list is many more of those things are bad products that not a lot of people like than are great products that a lot of people like. I feel like you're also being pretty generous with the list because a lot of those products are just yeah. uh, iterations on existing products, right? right? Like the Mac Pro is an iteration on a desktop Top computer. Right. The, I put I mean, that one on because it's like me. It was meaningfully different enough that it was like somebody actually had to think about the design. Yeah. But uh, but still, no. To your point, I mean, the the things that are genuinely completely brand new are basically like the Apple Pencil, the Apple Watch, AirPods, and HomePod, and th that is a, a wide spectrum of quality and success. And it's just not that good a list. Like by that 
list that I just read, the, the number of things that Apple has done really well in the last six or seven years is pretty small. I can also name two other products on here that probably no one at Apple would want us to talk about. The smart battery case, which yeah. <laughs> the first generation was ugly as sin. The and, camel hump? And air power, which it, my favorite quote from your from your piece trip, which was that somebody described this or or I don't know if, how, how it got described to you, but um, that was no better than a hot plate. Like a, a dorm room college, a dorm room <laughs> hot plate is what that turned out to be. That's and that's good. why it didn't yeah. launch. Yeah. But that's, that's what I think like the, this cultural shift is so much bigger. And I think that's what's so interesting because you really have this push and pull, which is at many companies between a creative side, a creative aesthetic visionary side and the business side, right? And I think that's what's so great about your, your kicker here, which I'll read. Mr. Ives' old design team, a group of... How do you pronounce this word? Aesthetes? Aesthetes, yeah. Aesthetes, is that right? Once sure. thought of as gods inside Apple, we report to COO Jeff Williams, a mechanical engineer with an MBA, right? Like from the company that we have believed has just, you know, thought so creatively and so differently, you know, think different about how things should look when you have them all now, this this team, once thought to be gods, reporting up to people who really are looking at the bottom line. It, it can create a huge shift in what we experience as consumers. So who's going to do the videos? This is what I really want to know. Like the, the most people know Johnny Ive from these product videos that he did for forever. Somebody now has to be the person people associate with Apple products in the same way that they did Johnny Ive for so long. And like he's the guy who told you how great Apple products were for decades. And now I don't know who that person is anymore. It's I mean, not going to be is- Tim Cook. He's just not that guy. Who's going to say this sentence as well as him? We have worked closely with horological experts from around the world. Horological. (laughs) They worked closely with horological experts from around the world. Or what about this one? The supple, handcrafted leather modern buckle closes with a solid metal clasp. The supple, handcrafted modern buckle. Supple. Who else is going to say supple like that? Joanna, you're going to have to do these videos from now on. This is your this is your new job. I mean, who can talk you're... about a a watch, a piece of watch metal like that? Who's going to pronounce aluminum wrong forever? Aluminium. This is it's too much. It's a lot to do. I mean, it's a rotating cast of characters yeah. now, right? Well, it's a lot of Craig Federighi now. It's it's just a lot more people. Oh, yeah. His voice. You know, he can't a, say supple. The... <laughs> it's going to sound so wrong. Sounds but what so if wrong. he said it as he ran his hands through his hair? Ooh. Oh. Or as someone else ran their hands through his hair. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. So what, I mean, as, as you, as all this happens and changes and it's what, the end of the year that this is happening or sometime later this year that Johnny's actually leaving officially uh, and he's starting a new thing and they'll keep working with Apple. But like, what are you, what are you looking for? What would be the signs that we would start to see that something has changed within Apple. I, mean, I think Johnny a big leaves. open question for me will be: Will Will Johnny be at the September iPhone event? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I. You mean I, like I, walking I around at the end? Yeah, and yeah. Well, will he? Will that be he and uh, the he? The last time he and Tim Cook go and um, you know look at the latest iPhone and stand there for photos. Uh, you know, I, I, that's I, always I my know. favorite. I think part. it's an open question. It's like as if they've never. <laughs> Who's going to show Tim Cook before. the new iPhone? Yeah, you know, they're <laughs> like, oh, look at this thing that people that made that work for us. Look at this. This this is amazing what we're launching today. We've never seen it before. (laughs) 
Okay, coming up in just a second, my interview with Andrew Blum about how we predict the weather and whether someday we'll actually be able to control it, which I hope is true. But first, it's time for our weekly segment. Today, I learned in which one of us brings something interesting or insane or just plain weird that we learned this week. I kind of want to go. Go. Okay, I learned this week that Tumblr still exists, and I learned that Tumblr still exists because I also have spent most of the last couple of days reading about the beef between Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun who is an agent and manager to people like Justin Bieber and basically every other famous musician you've ever heard of. Uh, and to quickly recap this story, because I actually think it's a really interesting uh, kind of microcosm of the debate over like who owns what and how digital goods exist. And so basically, Taylor Swift signed to this record label called Big Machine uh, when she was like 15 or something and put out all of her records up until now on that label. Uh, and the way it works when you have a record deal typically is that you don't actually own your music. Uh, they're called the masters and they're, they're not, they're not yours. They belong to the label. Uh, and so Taylor Swift eventually left big machine to go to, I think universal. She got a new record deal. Her album this summer is coming out on universal. Again, I think it's universal. Um, and there, I believe she actually owns her masters, but her old stuff was not in her possession. And so she left it at this old label and that label just sold to Scooter Braun uh, who has a long history of uh, beefing with Taylor Swift. Uh, she had her issues with Kanye, and according to Taylor Swift, uh, Scooter Braun helped like stage the thing where Kim Kardashian had her on Snapchat saying that she was fine with being Kanye's video. And so there's just been this weird mess between them forever. And so Taylor Swift wrote this big thing on Tumblr, which again, I just recently learned is still a thing that anyone uses, uh, about how... Basically, she's being bullied by them and didn't know what was going on and is having her stuff sold and used against her by people she hates. And it's become this big Instagram fight where now like Justin Bieber is Instagramming his support for Scooter and his wife is tweeting Apple Notes uh, messages. And it's become this like incredibly internet-y fight about who owns what on the internet. Uh, and it's been incredibly fascinating to watch and read and listen to and Instagram about. Uh, have you been following this? Are you as I interested mean, I as I am? I'm, I mean, I'm interested in two parts of the story. One, that Tumblr exists, and I was just looking at my Tumblr password to see if I still had a Tumblr account. And then two, <laughs> Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift fighting, which was really my only interest in this whole thing, like the whole backstory, which you just explained really well, and now I understand. But like to me, it was just like Justin Bieber and Taylor are really duking it out on the internet. Are you team Justin or team Taylor? Mm such a tough one for me just like generally speaking uh probably justin bieber you just had you know just how do you not love the beeps fair enough i mean you, you can't not sorry it's still just the best song yeah i understand um but the okay, funny yeah, thing so is, that... is that like you know taylor probably just needs to calm down right from her new song <laughs> exactly she needs to take several seats, which is my favorite line in that whole song. Okay, so I actually think this it, this story, if it keeps going, is going to be something we should cover in more depth on this show because I think it's fascinating. But we'll come back to it for now. Uh, next up, a look inside the unbelievable, crazy global system that helps you decide whether to wear a raincoat. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back. If you're like me, and I suspect you are, one of the first things you do every morning is check the weather. 
I really like the app Dark Sky, which has these cool minute by minute forecasts. But usually I'll just ask Google Assistant or Alexa. It helps to know what to wear and whether I need to plan for rain. But knowing the weather has much bigger effects, too. If we can predict storms, we can prepare for them and save lives. Weather prediction has billion-dollar effects on space travel and warfare and all sorts of things. So that's why for centuries we've tried to build systems that might help us understand and predict the weather. Andrew Blum, a journalist and author, just published a book called The Weather Machine, looking deeply into the history, present, and future of how we understand and predict the weather. It's bigger, it's more complicated, and it's just weirder and more important than I ever realized. Uh, What I really wanted to know is, are there secret government plans to try and control the weather, either to fix climate change or just create some kind of crazy new super weapon? Uh, I hope so. And we get to that. But first, when I called Andrew, we started out talking about where his book starts. In the mid-19th century, when the telegraph had just been invented and suddenly people could communicate across huge distances for the first time. And what did they want to talk about? The weather, of course. Yeah, this was, um, you know, this is sort of a decade into the telegraph. Um, so you finally you have an American telegraph network, you know, most places are connected by telegraph. And then you have telegraph operators first informally sending news of, you know, what the, you know, what the weather was in their place. And then that evolves when the Smithsonian is, is founded, basically, I think the year before, and the headquarters are built in the mall in Washington. And they put a map up on the wall and begin formally collecting uh, observations each morning pegged to its spot on the map, you know, the, the temperature and what the conditions are, you know, rain, cloud, whatever. And it's just this sort of amazing moment where you have this, you, you, it's not until you can know what the weather is in many places at one time that you can even begin to think about, you know, what the weather is going to be in one place at many times, you know, particularly times into the future. And that's, you know, it's really that that kind of ability that, that telecommunications gives us to be in, you know, to have news from more than one place at once that it only, you know, is the first step towards opening the door to weather forecasts. And in, in 1848, the, the things that they were sending over those telegraph lines were basically, was it just like, go outside, see what's going on and send that? Do they have more sophisticated tools than that? I think, you know, I, 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 the, one of the pieces that I, one of the places I focused on for this history, partly because it was, it was, had a sort of continuous history throughout this entire time was this island off the coast of Norway called Utsira. And if I remember correctly, they got a telegraph basically at that moment in 1850, 1855. And from the beginning, they were doing wind speed, uh, wind direction, temperature. But the wind speed wasn't, it was measured with the, with the Beaufort scale, it was measured sort of visually, you know, what are the leaves doing, what are the mm. waves doing, not actually with a number. Uh, so definitely there was sort of more granularity as the decades went by about the kinds of observations they were taking. Uh, but at the beginning, it was, you know, cloud condition, temperature, things like that. Okay. So, okay. And then fast forward, whatever, 160 years to, to now. And I have a feeling this is a, this is a much harder question to answer. But what is the, what is the weather gathering apparatus of, of the world look like now? Well, I mean, the, the the first and most important important point is that it's global. Observations are kind of the the dog that's wagged by the tail of the weather models. You know, it's the weather models and their demand for information that kind of has dictated how the observation system is put together. So the first thing to recognize is yes, the global piece is there. And then, of course, there's satellites, which are the kind of top of the list, and not necessarily the geostationary satellites that we associate with the kind of images of weather satellites, but it's actually the polar orbiting satellites that collect more quantitative data than visual data that are actually essential for the weather models, you know, for the, for the supercomputers. So they're measuring, what kinds of stuff are they measuring? They're not taking pictures 
pictures, but they're collecting data all the time, right? Yeah, so it's these it's these hyperspectral sounders they call them. So it's you know microwave sounders that collect uh, humidity, that collect uh, wind speed and direction, you know profiles at different levels of the atmosphere, and it's something like I think it's ninety percent of the observations that that are used by the weather models each day come from this sort of one suite of satellites. Uh, but it is really amazing that you know yeah the you know the geostationary satellites are the ones with the pretty pictures, and they're absolutely crucial you know for forecasting storms and things. But when you're talking about you know two and three and five day weather forecasts which are you know coming almost entirely from the supercomputer weather models it's the, the the polar orbiting satellites that are really you know where the action's at you know because they're the ones that are contributing the most data interesting okay is there an end to that ever like do we ever get to the point where we have all the data we need like did you get the sense from people that this is a, a sort of permanent whatever that line is in calculus that gets close to zero but never quite hits it um, or is it like an actual solvable problem. Well, a couple of ways to answer that. I think, you know, one thing to recognize is there are different scales of weather. Thunderstorms, for example, are very difficult to resolve, which is the word that the weather modelers mm-hmm. use. You know, so they can kind of say, the models will say, well, this is conditions that are conducive to thunderstorms, but how they actually kind of fire up is, is a problem that happens at a smaller scale of the model. So it's, you know, definitely plenty to, to, to figure out on that scale. But for big weather systems, the convergence of the observations uh, and the forecast um, can stay pretty tight. You know, sort of a, a, a duet, you know, the, the models in reality are sort of moving forward together. And, you know, the, the one is leading and the other is following and they're trying to match up. And, you know, a couple days in advance, they're really close. And it's amazing to watch the sort of, you know, to, to recognize that when the forecast gets so good, it leads the observations along because they're almost identical. And of course, they begin to diverge. Um, but to you know, answer your question, it's really, you know, they try to squeeze out more precision in those things lining up, and then they try to squeeze that out farther into the future. And there's plenty to go there. I mean, they're talking about, you know, two weeks ahead, you know, solid forecast two weeks ahead in the next 10 to 15 years. Wow. Yeah, that's that's wild. I mean, it was sort of amazing to read the book and realize that, you know, the, the, the joke is still that every weatherman is always wrong. Uh, yeah. But that's just not true anymore. <laughs> like, the, well, these I, things are very good now. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, you know, we all get caught in the rain sometimes. So it's like, where's the message getting garbled? You know, is it is there? And I think, you know, some of it is with the idea that you, um, you know, that you, uh, it's, it's getting garbled because we're not we're not hearing the forecast. And sometimes the forecast, it's is that it might rain. And you know, it might rain is a pretty good forecast. Uh, it's better than it won't rain, or it definitely will rain. You know, but we don't quite know what to do with that. But I do think there's a bit of a lag between what it can say about the future weather and what we actually believe it it can say. So then the, the the you mentioned the supercomputers and that's the like sort of second focus of a lot of what you talk about is basically and, and I, I read the book thinking so much about how sort of artificial intelligence of all kinds has grown in the last few years and it really feels sort of the same way. It's like step one, collect this unfathomable, unending amount of data. Step mm-hmm. two feed it all into a computer. Step three, you know, a bunch of question marks. Step four, magic happens. Uh, right, and right. it's that, that middle part seems so complicated. It's, it's the like, how do, I, how do I sort through this data and how do I teach a computer to make sense of it? And uh, it, it seems like the, the weather services you, you, were, you were with and, and looking at and talking to are fairly sophisticated at, at understanding what to make of this giant, trove of of data is that true are we are we good at understanding kind of what makes weather in the atmosphere 
Yeah, I mean, for for two reasons, and it, it's funny, you know, every you know conversations I've had with like people who work in machine learning or in AI or stuff like that, they they immediately think they can solve the problem. They're gonna be like, oh, well, if you just you know throw enough of this at it. But there's two you know huge differences between the weather forecast and other kinds of AI. I mean, the first is that the models aren't based on past experience; they're based on the laws of physics. I mean, I guess the laws of physics are itself a kind of past experience, you know. But they're they're it's you know it's thermodynamics. You know, these are basic equations that you know the, the roots of which go back over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, so you're so you're really describing the physical behavior of the atmosphere. You're not you're not using sort of past weather to predict future weather. The second thing is, you know, they've been they have every day the weather comes, so the models make a forecast. You know immediately if you're right or wrong. And then not only that, but they then test the models and sort of tune them against the last, you know, 50 years of weather data. When you say testing the model over the, the 50 years of weather, like what, what are they looking for? Do you, you plug in a bunch of numbers and see if it predicts the forecast as it turned out to be for the last 50 years? It is interesting that there are right answers to this stuff. Yeah. For example, at, um, at ECMWF, which is the, the European Center for Medium Range Forecast, the home of the Euro, you know, the world's greatest weather model, they divide their supercomputer time in half. You know, half of it is for operations and half of it's for research. And what the research side means is that, you know, any of the scientists who work there, whose job it is to improve the model, they can write a new piece of code, you know, that describes their particular scheme, they call it, their sort of particular you know, responsibility, the behavior of the atmosphere. So it might be the boundary layer, you know, just the sort of lower parts of the air, or it might be convection, you know, if it's going to rain. You know, they can fiddle with their code, have the supercomputer time to run the model, to run their new version of the model using the you know incredible uh, data library of past weather of, of observations you see a complete picture of the atmosphere uh, i think they they do a project called reanalysis where they go back even i think as much as 100 years uh, to sort of you know have a you know have a model of the atmosphere going back that far so it's really that split of supercomputer time you know that that gives them gives the 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 modelers at the european center the ability to tweak and verify and tweak again and keep doing that until the model improves so and you can kind of roll it forward and back in time, right? Where it's you, you can sort of see where it's going and then watch the real world catch up, or go back and see if it would have guessed right fifty years ago. Yeah, I mean you. I mean it's two Earths. You know, it's the simulated mm-hmm. Earth and it's the real Earth, and so you can have observation data or you can have model data. And when the observation and the model data are identical, um, then you're in business. Like then you're doing it well. And so they might stay identical for six hours into the future, twelve hours into the future, you know. But 120 hours into the future, the the model data and the observation data start to diverge. And so it's all about kind of getting them to dance and sync, you know, to to get them the model to behave exactly as the atmosphere does. How far out do you trust a forecast now? Because like now I look at a 10 day <laughs> forecast and I used to think everything after, you know, tomorrow was sort of nonsense. But now I'm like, maybe I should believe the whole 10 days. Like what's how far out does this go? Well, so it's funny. So I, I trust it, but you also don't really have any reason to trust it unless you're getting ready to make a decision. Interesting. Right. So so I, you know, so for example, my my daughter played softball this spring and I was joking around with the other parents, you know, who I was like, you know, what's the weather going to be? <laughs> what's the weather going to be, Andrew? Um, you know, and I'm not a meteorologist. This is your life I, now. You've, you've this is my signed life up now, for exactly. this. Yeah. Um, and, but it was like, well, you know, okay, it's, it's Monday and it looks like it's going to rain Sunday morning. And like, we, there's nothing to do with that information. True. You know, but like by Tuesday and Wednesday or Thursday, if it still looks like it's going to rain th- Sunday morning and it's said that the entire way through, then maybe it's like, well, okay, it's most likely going to rain and the game's going to be canceled and we can begin to sort of get in that mindset. And so I have to it was very satisfying when that happened a bunch of times. And I was like, I, you know, I, I told you on Monday it was going to be canceled. Um, but I know enough that the you know the models they, they they do shift around, and it's you know there are it's funny there are places um, Norway is one. Each weather forecast comes with a green, yellow, or red code, which indicates its confidence. Hmm. 
Uh, so it's like, you know, green means, you know, we're really sure this is going to be the case. And red means we don't know, it might rain. Uh, and that that's sort of baked into the system. You know, it's part of the what they call the ensemble model. Uh, but we don't, we just, we don't have the language to sort of hear it. You know, we hear sort of it might rain and we get annoyed at the, at the TV meteorologist if you still watch television. Um, but it's like, it's that kind of, you know, it's not just like yeah, blind trust or not. It's some sort of confluence of, well, is the output really consistent in a way that the model seems to have locked on to a likely output? And you can, you can see that in your weather app if you're kind of looking for the right thing. And then the other piece is, well, do I care? Like, is it really actionable? Am I going to make a decision on it? Interesting. Okay. And do we ever get to a point where you get a, a essentially perfect weather forecast, even for, you know, one day in advance. I mean, there, there's this app, Dark Sky, that I'm, I'm sure you've seen, that is, uh, it, it gives you notifications that'll be like, it's going to start raining in nine minutes. And it's not perfect, but it's good enough, often enough, that it feels sort of like magic. And I feel like that's the that's the goal, right? That's, that's when the immediate forecast starts to be really useful, where it's like, hey, go inside, it's going to rain in five minutes, or you know, it, it can give you really sort of useful minute to minute information. Are we are we going to get there? Are we getting close to that? I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I, I think we're 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 there in a lot of cases. Not in every case. Not in every place. You know, like in I was just, I was talking to a meteorologist this week in uh, Alabama, who's like, you know, thun, in summertime, you know, it's all you know th- pop up thunderstorms. We don't know, but you know, in the Northeast, if it's you know if there's a storm coming, it's going to rain at four o'clock on Tuesday. Very likely, we kind of know that already on Thursday. So yeah, so I think we're there in some cases. And then you know, again, the you know for me, the foundational example, you know, paradigm changing example was was Sandy. You know, Hurricane Sandy was eight days ahead that the meteorologists were like, whoa, you know, the model's saying something crazy, you know, a couple of days, sometimes those storms pop up, and then they disappear in the model the next day. And of course, we're not going to make decisions eight days ahead. The fact that we do make decisions, you know, four or five days ahead, that starts to to, to be really notable. Mm-hmm. You know, amazing example from a cyclone Fanny in India, 20 years ago, 10s of 1000s of people were killed. Uh, this year, they evacuated a million people. And it's like, it's not just that the forecast, you know, because they had a forecast 20 years ago, but nobody really bought it. And at, you know, to have the confidence and the extra lead time and the sense that the models had really locked into this to evacuate a million people and essentially you know, minimize deaths. But that's just an amazing example of what it means to make a decision you know, based on a better forecast within a time frame that it's possible to make that decision. Mm. Okay. So and then it, it seems uh, like a, a sort of obvious next step to all of this. And you hint at this a couple of times in the book, and, and this this clearly needs to be the sequel to the book, uh, which is that, can we control the weather? Like, I've seen the movie Geostorm. I desperately mm-hmm. want it to be a real thing. It's sort of terrifying, but also kind of fascinating. Uh, like, is this is this a thing people are actually thinking about in a real way, or is this just sort of pure science fiction that we can actually get to a point someday where we understand the weather so well enough we can change it? When John F. Kennedy was on his weather stick, you know, when he was saying this is a great point of cooperation, one of the UN speeches, he says, you know, we need to cooperate, you know, for weather prediction and weather control. And the assumption was that the two would come together. I mean, there are examples, you know, the Beijing Olympics, there was cloud seeding to, to keep it from raining over Beijing, things like that. It's not something I, I spent a lot of time thinking about, partly because um, it, the sort of more obvious and important recognition of weather control is the weather control or the weather out of control of, of climate change. You know, it's like, it's like, can humans influence the weather? Yes. Right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. And then I, I have to know what, what weather app do you use? Thanks for asking. Uh, <laughs> I think it's, um, so I don't use dark sky. Sometimes I use dark sky if it's like about to rain, mm-hmm. 
but Weather Underground, which is comes from the same forecasting engine, they call it, as the Weather Channel, as the Weather Channel app, as the Apple app, they all come from the same system. So they're giving you the same output. But what I like about Weather Underground is it really gives you sort of finer grain detail of, you know, of, of how things are going to change. And if you sort of refresh it, the, the sort of the undulating line of daily temperature and, and you know, um, precipitation possibility you see it change with each new model run, essentially. So I, you know, if you kind of watch it from day to day, you can sort of see how, you know, the, the likelihood of rain or the temperature is trending in one way or another. The Apple weather, Yahoo weather, Facebook weather, Google weather, they're all coming from the weather company system. But Weather Underground is the one that has the most detail left in the app. Again, Andrew's book is called The Weather Machine. It's great. Highly recommend it. His book about the internet called Tubes is also a fun read. Anyway, that's our show for the week. Thanks to Andrew, Tripp, and Joanna for being here. Thanks to Tanya, our producer, and Wilson, our editor. And most of all, thank you for listening. This episode's coming out a couple of days early, but we usually have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you have feedback or ideas or cool travel tips, email us at instantmessage at wsj.com. Have an awesome holiday, and we'll talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.